Hello everybody, welcome to the Pits of Metal Border Chaos, it's your host Dave, Island Line special guest, the legendary jet driver, Mike Evgens. How you doing, Mike? Doing great today, how are you? Good. So Michael, you're one of the legends of the jet car racing. Well, I don't know whether, I guess that makes me old, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're all getting old. That's for sure. So how did, how did you begin your uh, career in uh, drag racing? Well, uh, I lived kind of close to a drag strip in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was born. And uh, that's why I started drag racing, because it was the closest track. And I did it like everybody else, you know, whatever car they were driving at the time. And I had a 61 Pontiac uh, uh 389 tri-power four-speed it was a pretty cool car and i took it out there and lost a lot and won once in a while because i didn't know what i was doing it was just all in the learning process of how to race right so so now how long did you uh, race that for oh, a couple of years you know and then uh uh i was always around auto because my dad had a service station then he had an auto parts store, so I was always around it, cars, you know, and uh, I ended up, uh, what did I do first? I had a little, a Linwood uh, welding chassis that I bought, and that was my first real race car. It was a little dragster that had a, a 292 Chevy in it, a 283, 60 over, you end up with a 292, it was terrible. Uh, I'm not a tuner. I prove that <laughs> very quickly. I'm a, dri a driver. <clears throat> right. Excuse me. I'm joking here. So, uh, but I, I took it out every Sunday, and it was terrible. And, uh, you know, I always used to joke with the photographers that they could run alongside the car and take pictures of it. <laughs> so you drove that car for two years, and what did you get it? What did you uh, move into after that? I was broke like everybody else, but I ended up getting a, uh, a Turbanique rocket-powered go-kart. And uh, there was a guy in Detroit, and he had a rocket-powered minibike and a rocket-powered go-kart. Kind of like Jack McClure started with when uh, those Turbanique motors came out. Uh -huh. and, I went, yeah, and I went up there to Detroit, and... Uh, uh, couldn't take the couldn't take the go uh, the mini bike because there wasn't enough room in my car, so I, I had no trailer, I had nothing. So we threw the go kart into the trunk and headed back to Cleveland and fiddled around with that thing for a little while and went out kind of to the local tracks in uh, Cleveland. I did take it once to all the way to Florida to go uh, and uh, ran it there. I went 136 miles an hour on that thing. It was a, a little time bomb ready to blow up. And it did every time. Fortunately, it wasn't some kind of major explosion. But the guy that had it, I don't know if you know his story, but he really didn't. He had an idea, didn't perfect it, and started selling these things. And every week I'd call him up and I'd go, oh, I burned all these nozzles out. Well, what was the pressures that you were running? 
and we had oxygen and nitrogen. Nitrogen was to uh, pressurize the fuel tank, and uh, the oxygen was to make sure it burned. And you'd burn out these nozzles, and he'd charge you a fortune for it. Then I found out later on that they were just nothing but furnace nozzles that were a few bucks, you know. And I started buying them at the hardware store. They were the same thing. And I, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of, like, bookings with it. I had a few, but it was just sort of to do something different. Who, who drives a rocket go-kart? You know, they just, they weren't uh, very many of them out there. The most famous, of course, was Jack uh, McClure. So what year did that fizzle out for you? Oh, boy, I was hoping you weren't going to ask questions like that. I'm the worst person in the world to remember anything. I think something happened two years ago. It turns out it's 12 years ago. And I go, really? just seems like yesterday. So, you know, that was probably in the early, I would say it was in the early 60s, 60 to 65, somewhere in that area. That's about as close as I'm going to get. So then after that rocket-powered uh, cart, what did you go into after that? Well, that's when I actually started looking at jet cars. Uh, I knew I wanted a race, but I didn't have any money to be a top fuel guy. Or I mean, that's when everything was popular with the fuel guys, and everybody had one, and uh, you know, it didn't cost what it you know, crazy amounts of money that it does nowadays. So uh, I just had this little... You know this Chevy thing, and you know I did okay. Not really okay. I it, it was terrible. I uh, I didn't know what, what I was doing. I was not a tuner. So uh, I moved to Akron, Ohio, at that point, and I was right there where jet powered racing was. You know the thing, a pickle road, the Arpons brothers, and I started hanging around that shop. Got to know Bobby Tatro and, uh, you know, Walter and Arthur was next door. You, you didn't, I, I got to know him, but I, I was more of a Walter guy. And I hung around there so much that what happened was I got fired from my job. <laughs> uh, so that was the little kick I needed, I guess, to go up to Walter and I, I was trying to be a driver for him is what I wanted to do. And uh, there was one driver that he was having a little bit of a problem with. And this was kind of at the end of the year. And he, I can imagine how many people had come up to him prior to me asking him to be a driver. You know, everybody, hey, can I drive that car? Well, you know, he got tired of listening to it, but I just persisted. And uh, he said, well, I'm having trouble with this one guy. And maybe we can work something out. Well, what happened was that guy crashed and destroyed the car. Matter of fact, he died in the wreck. I happened to be there that night. That was a Dragway 42. And uh, so there went my ride, so to speak, if there was ever going to be one. Well, Walter, being a good businessman like he was, he said, you know what? You, you really don't want to drive for me. He said, you want to own one of these things. And I'm like laughing, sure. 
here I'm sitting with twelve dollars, you know, in my pocket. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, somehow, and I don't know how to this day it really happened, but we struck a deal, and uh, I have the original contract that we wrote up. It's on a napkin. <laughs> and I, I still have it, you know, for the sale of the car and the truck to haul it in. You know, I had nothing. I had no trailer. I had I had nothing. So he knew that uh, I needed it all. So we made a deal. Unbelievable as it sounds. I paid $7,000 for the whole kit and caboodle. And you can't buy tires for a car. This. <laughs> Nowadays, for seven grand, you know, it was just crazy. And he kind of helped me a little bit because uh, they'd call him for bookings. And he still had cars at that time. Uh, and uh, But when he couldn't fill a date, he'd say, call Mike, you know. And so I'd get these phone calls. And the very first uh, contract I got, I quit my job. It took a year to build that car, by the way, the, the one that I was driving. Craig Arfons really was the one who was doing the majority of the work on it. And I was the wrench getter and, you know, learning a little bit about the, the engines and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I did pick up a little bit and uh, I went out racing. I went to uh, Epping, New Hampshire was the very first contract I ever had. And at that point, now, there weren't a lot of these cars running. There were about eight of them, eight, nine, something like that. So I guess I kind of was in there pretty much at the beginning. And uh, so we, I hooked up with Doug Rose at the time, the Green Mamba guy. Everybody knows that car. And he was setting up a tour to go west. And I, I think I had one other race booked. At that point, he said, you want to go out west? I said, sure. So we headed out and went to, uh, we went to Puyallup in Washington. And we went to uh, a track in Eugene, Oregon. Then we came down south to California and raced there. And then on the way back, I think we went to Phoenix. So we made a big circle, you know, and I kind of ended up back in near Ohio. So that that's was sort of the beginning of it in my really first year, and uh, you know it was all new to me. I mean, I was on the road, no no pit crew, had to find somebody that uh, was at the track, and I always went on the you know, PA system. Anybody here with experience driving a dump truck, we figured that was the best because they had power takeoffs, and that's how we used. Uh, used uh, the starter we had it mounted on a power takeoff and, and this was a big rig i had it was a c550 ford cab over had a 30-foot box on the back of it and it never occurred to me really what it was at the time until years and years and years and years later it was like the biggest best thing out there i mean the big touring pros were on open trailers and i had a completely enclosed thing i had a little bunk up in the front i had a small sink if i wanted to you know if i wanted to stay in it overnight or something i could do that 
and uh, it was pretty cool rig coming in. I can tell you that. From there was nobody that had these kind of rigs back then. Fifth wheel trailer, nobody ever heard of one, you know. So we had a good time with it at that point. But like I say, I used to have to always grab somebody out of the crowd, and cause I didn't have money to even pay for a crew guy. Uh, until later on, until the next year, that was, you know, I said, I got to have somebody that knows this act every, every time, you know, right. and that's how that sort of worked out. But, you know, those were the beginning years. You're just starry eyed and, you know, you're going, what am I doing here? And, uh, and the car was real consistent, made runs, always, always worked. So we had a good time doing it. Freddie oh. Sibley, um, you know, you start to meet everybody, Bobby Motes, and uh, matter of fact, the very first time I raced in Epping, I thought this is perfect because I'm going to go up to Epping, New Hampshire. Nobody even knows where New Hampshire is, right? And I'm thinking, I'm going to go up there, I'll be all by myself. I pull in, everybody is there, everybody. Arthur, Arthur with the Super Cyclops, Bobby Motes, uh, Doug Rose. I mean, I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? Now I'm going to be a real idiot. I had never made a full pass in the car. Never. And I thought, Jesus, I got to do something. I'd only tested it at Thompson Dragway in Cleveland. And I, you know, it's a pretty good shot when you hit that burner. And you kind of keep your foot in it. Well, not foot. Keep your hand in it. It was all hand throttle and until you can't stand it anymore. Then you shut it off. So you go half track and shut it off and maybe a little bit later, more the next time. But I never made a full pass. So I, we get up there and get on the starting line. I think Bobby Motes was the first guy I ever raced. And I had one switch, the afterburner switch, in the wrong position. So when I went to throttle up and put afterburner fuel in it, what it did was it lit. So Bobby's sitting there and I, you know, in pre-stage and I'm gone. So I thought, boy, this was great, you know, how could I screw this up? So the next round... I made sure the switch is in the right spot and we leave the line, whoever I was racing, maybe Doug or Fred Sibley, I don't know. But I, you know, maybe a thousand feet, I couldn't stand it anymore. I thought my head was going to come off. So I just shut it off. And the car goes, goes into a, a big wheel and when the parachute hits, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen pictures of these cars with the front end three or four feet up in the air. Well, nobody told me about that part of it, and I went, what the heck is this? I'm looking at the stars, you know. And so the front end came down, and I went, well, okay. Now I know what that's about. And But I never, I still didn't make the full run. So the last, final round, I got up there, and I thought, if I don't make a full run, this guy's not going to pay me. So I just bit uh bit down on my lip and away we went and made, finally made a full pass for the first time and the funny part of it was they opened up the, the like the track starting line everybody could come down and see the cars 
So they held everybody in the shutdown area until the final run, and then they let us all come back at once. And then there were all the, the people that had come out that day to come and, you know, see the cars up close. So we're, we're all on a starting line, probably six of us I, I, at least. And, you know, I have crowds around me and everybody else had their crowds. And pretty soon I'm getting a bigger crowd than, you know, I'm going, where are these people coming from? Geez. And they were just coming and more and more coming. And I'm thinking, boy, I'm pretty cool here. I got a lot of people coming. Well, what I figured out was everybody else, you did that for about 10, 15 minutes, and then you went back to the pits, loaded up, and then, you know, you were ready to go get something to eat or go back to the motel. And that's why I had the big crowd. I was the only one that stayed out there. It was crazy. <laughs> as soon as I saw that, man, I, I now I feel like an idiot, uh, you know, so I, I just told everybody thanks, and I got to go now, and... I towed back into the pit area, and I'm sure they got a laugh out of that, you know, the, all the other drivers. I stayed out there for 20 minutes longer than anybody else did, and they were thinking, well, he's got a lot to learn. Yeah. So so uh, how did it feel, Mike, to, to finally do your first full pass? How did it feel? Well, um, surprisingly, it really didn't take long for me to get used to the what happens and you know the reactions to the parachute and the front end coming up in the air and actually i used to really enjoy that part of the ride that was fun that front end was up in the air for a long long time while you know while the chute was working and it just sort of settled it right down real easy it was like a some kind of roller coaster ride and it was just like that was fun i always liked that plus you knew the parachute was working wow so now that that uh first jet car that that was that that was the earthquake or that was before earthquake well actually initially walter and i had this Walter, more than I, had decided that the best name for that car would have been one that was already out there, had raced already. And he had a car called the Exodus. And that's what he, he said, we should go with the Exodus. People will know that car. I never heard of it, but he said, you know, that'd be the way to go. So I uh, said, okay, it's the Exodus. And, which means to go forth, you know. And, uh, I, I just didn't like that name at all. And the following years, when I changed it to the Earthquake, that was Earthquake One. You should call it Eartha. Wow. So the Earthquake One. How how many earthquakes were there altogether? Three. Three. Yeah. Now, besides uh, Jet uh, Dragsters, you had a funny cars too, right?
it rolled over, caught on fire. It was uh, mm. not a good thing. Uh, yeah. Here's a funny part of this story. Now, when it was doing all its tumbling and rolling, like the the parachute came out, and it and somehow because there's a lot of suction on that thing, it got sucked into the intake of the engine, destroyed it, and. Years and years, years later, we were walking through a junkyard in Texas, and don't you know, I find that engine. I see an engine there, and there's a parachute sticking out of the front of it, and I thought, Jesus, this is my engine. I don't know how it ended up there. I have no idea, but that's where it ended up. It was crazy to see that thing. And uh, So after that car, then I had the, uh, the third one that, that I built was the Streamliner, which is the one that I, I just loved that car. It was Flash Gordon all the way. It was the swoopiest, had the X-15 canopy on it, all enclosed. It was so neat. Unfortunately, I couldn't get that car to run. I spent a million bucks trying to make that car run. I ran more kerosene through that thing than you could shake a stick at. It was always on the test pad. We had strain gauges and stuff to try to tune that thing up. And I just, I mean, it was a couple tenths off all the time from whatever anybody else was running. Two, three tenths. It was, it was just not a performing car. But boy, if, if you lined them all up together and you didn't know anything about jet racing, you'd look at my car and say, that's the one that's going to be the winner here tonight. Unfortunately, looks don't make it run, you know. But I had a good time with that car. I sold it to a, actually, I didn't sell it. I, I traded it to a guy in Ohio who uh, was a big car enthusiast. He had a lot of, uh, uh, he had a lot of cars that he had in his collection. And I, and I traded it to him for a 1960. Cadillac convertible, man, it was a cool car. So we just swapped. That car then it ran it ran again as the Master Blaster. The guy's name was Otto Jackson, who I actually made the deal with, and he called it the Master Blaster. But he took all the cool stuff off the car. I thought he took the, the enclosed canopy off. Well, that was what made that car cool, you know. And then he changed the whole front end of it around also. And I, you know, it's his car, you do what you want. But boy, I thought he made a mistake. I don't know where it is now. The last thing I ever heard, it may be in Europe somewhere. But uh, that that could be true or could not be true. Otto Jackson passed away here five, six years ago, probably 10. You know, again, I don't remember dates that well. I don't really know where it ended up, but I think from what I heard, it was in uh, Europe somewhere. So what year did you uh, get out of uh, jet car racing? 95 was when I uh, was my last run. And oddly enough, this was strange. I really had quit that year, and Marvin Seltzer was driving the car. For Roger Gustin, that's, you know, I'll, we'll get back into that in a minute, uh, but uh, Roger called me and said, man, I need you to drive for me next week or two weeks, and he says, no, Marvin's going to his daughter's graduation. I said, yeah, okay. 
I said, where? He says, Epping. I said, you're kidding. So I started at Epping. 25 years later, I ended at Epping. Big, big time span in between there. I, I thought that was kind of ironic that that's where I began and that's where I ended. But all those years after the earthquake card, see what happened was I uh, got hooked up with Roger. He wanted me to drive or wanted wanted me to work for him. I said, I'm not a tire wiper. I'm not interested. And that was when he had the first lava machine. And I said, nah, I, I got a car. I'm going to go up. I'm, you know, I'm going to race my car. And he hounded me and hounded me and hounded me. And he, kept, he said, I'm getting another car. There'll be another car. And you'll drive that one. And I said, I don't. Well, I was so frustrated with my car because I couldn't really get it to run like I thought it should that finally he wore me down and, and I said, okay, I'll drive. And that's how that started out. But in the, oh boy, I can't remember all this stuff. In the meantime, Les Shockley called me and he said, I need you to drive for me if you want to drive for me so I made this deal with him to drive the Shockwave funny car, not the trucks. They never drove any of those trucks that he had. That's what he was going to do, go out with the first trucks that he built. And so he had this funny car, and I said, okay. So I started driving that, and I only drove it for a short period of time, like the, a third of the season, maybe the end of the season, or a quarter of There wasn't much left. And I said, okay, and that, in between that time when that season was over and I had, I was the driver for the shockwave, that's when Roger really kind of started leaning on me. And he just, Roger talked me into it. And that's when I got involved with, uh, with him and the lava machine cars. And sure enough, Roger did exactly what he said he was going to do. He'd get another car. It just took an, uh, a year extra. Wasn't, he didn't get it right away from them. And uh, so I was one full season as his crew chief, whatever. They used to call me the team manager. Uh, you know, I don't know what that meant exactly. <laughs> Sounded like a good name, though. And uh, so then the following year is when we, we got the second, second car. And uh, that was a... Uh, soap came out with they had two products they had the bar soap which they've had forever and still do and then they decided they were going to make a, uh, a liquid hand soap and so that that was the pump car we used as was a pump you pumped it up and then you know the lava squirted out in your hand instead of a bar and so that that was the pump car and roger drove the bar car that was our way of knowing which car we were talking about. Uh, and that's when, uh, you know, we went through a couple of cars there. And uh, uh, that was finally it for me. I just, I was so tired. And I had the best deal in racing, you know. All I had to do was get in my car, drive to the Atlanta airport, 
fly in on a Friday night and we'd race Saturday and Sunday and I'd fly out Sunday night and I was back in my own bed Sunday night and I just got to a point where I just couldn't take it anymore it was just so I don't know it's just so hard out there and I had it as good as you could have it I don't know what else? And I told Roger, I said, Roger, the only way I'll drive for you anymore is if they open a drag strip across the street from the house. And I'm not going to, you know, and I'm sure they're not going to do that. So, you know, we parted ways at that point. That's when Marvin Seltzer took over the ride that I was driving. So now, Michael, what was the quickest pass that you've ever made in a jet car? Well, uh, you know, I never really remembered the ET. I just remember the mile an hour it was 282 miles an hour because at the time it was a track record at Rockingham. And that was the fastest that I've ever gone. ET wise, you know, 570s, somewhere in that area. So, you know, I never really remembered the ETs. They didn't matter to us, you know. I mean, we're out there putting a show on and. Uh, yeah, you wanted to go past every time, but uh, I, I remember the record-setting runs and the fastest I ever went kind of thing, because you know that. And uh, 282 was the fastest mile an hour I ever ran. And I knew it was a good one, you know. I could, You can just feel it when it's really humping. And uh, I got out of that car at the other end, and I knew that was a good pass. Then now nowadays you got these drivers going three hundred, over three hundred miles per hour. Yeah, it's amazing to me how all these, you know, even even everybody thinks that the jets will run five hundred miles an hour, which is totally ridiculous. They don't go that fast, and to like we used to race a lot of funny cars and fuel fuel cars, and we didn't never did well against those guys. We need. I always thought that the track was. 20 feet longer, we'd have won every race because we were closing hard on these guys. They'd be running 220, shut down to 250, you know. And I always wished the track would have been, instead of 1320, it should have been 1340. We'd have nailed everybody. They would leave on us pretty good. But that was back in the day when these engines were 2,000 pounds. The engines that... Uh, we ended up using these J85s. They weigh 500 pounds. They're like a small black Chevy. So they can run hard. And, you know, the 60-foot uh, times are really good. And the ETs have dropped, and, you know, have dropped and dropped and dropped. But they're, they're at a point now where they're not going to go much lower than they are right now, in my opinion. Uh, you know, it takes time to go from A to B and you can't do it in one so you know I mean when you look back you can see the they haven't dropped a ton of ET in the last five or ten years you know if, if we made you make a six second pass and then it takes two years to go 590 and then it takes three more years to go five. 70 and you know the dragster is now somewhere around 520s 530s 
But that's 15 years later. If it was so easy to do it, we could have done it in two more years. NHRA had us all wrong as far as speed limits they set. They were afraid of us. We all know that. They were banned for how many years? They just thought that these cars were going to wipe out, the, you know, get out of control and wipe out half the people in the stands. And, you know, I mean, we have crashes just like every other class. Uh, I mean, but we don't get crazy and kill people on the, you know, whoever gets hurt is usually the driver. If there's a problem, that's, that's who feels the brunt of it. But NHRA had their reasoning. I understand it. But they always thought that we were able to go so much faster and quicker than we actually were. We were squeezing everything we could get out of it at that time. And they just didn't believe us. They just thought we were holding back. And as soon as they, we had all these regulations that you couldn't go this fast. If you go that fast, you're going to get fined. And, you know, a lot of people didn't know that. But once NHRA gave us the okay to race again, you know, they put a lot of restrictions on us. But they didn't really make any sense, at least to us, because we knew how fast our cars would go. And we were trying hard every time to tweak something. or we, There were certain adjustments that you could make on these cars to make them go a little bit faster. But we were pretty much there, you know. And, and time told the story. Once we got okays to, to run, what have we picked up? Four tenths of a second. It's it's not like we could have gone out there and run a three second time. It just wasn't going to happen. So, you know, that's that was just a misconception that NHRA had. But it was fine. You know, I mean, we the only person that ever really got burned on it was Marvin Seltzer, and they said he went over three hundred miles an hour, and we knew. There was no possible way that that would happen. There just wasn't, it wasn't going to run 300 miles an hour. And uh, there was some kind of timing mix up. And uh, they wanted to find him five grand and pay it or you're out. Well, Marvin said, see you, thank you, I'm out. <laughs> that was the end of that. You know, putting him out of drag racing, actually. Yeah. So... That uh, was a crazy time back then. You know, they had their ideas on how it should be run and what kind of rules, but they they didn't need to put anything on us because we couldn't go as fast as they were talking about. We never did, you know, so it didn't matter in the end, uh, but that, that's how it ended up. They finally took the restrictions off. They, after 20 years, they finally figured out maybe we weren't lying to them to begin with. You know, we told them they won't go that fast. And if they were able to, they'd be running in the, you know, fours. Nobody ever ran, ran a jet car in the fours that I'm aware of. The fastest one, I think, is about a 523. Could be wrong here and there, maybe a tenth. But, you know, that 50 cal car, that Scotty Heat, yeah. that was that's a fast, fast car. And uh, I always gave them. I didn't think they were lying about it. A lot of guys want to 
blow a story up, talk to people how fast these cars run. Well, you know, that I don't know why they bother doing that. Just to make themselves uh, feel good or something. But all the jet car guys know that's a bunch of bull. It just doesn't happen, you know. So those guys, to me, they were just straight up guys telling the truth. Here's the car. Here's the times. Here's it on video. They're showing you make a run. And uh, those guys are really, those guys are real consistent on how they do it and and uh, what they do. And there's no no bragging from them. That's what I like about them the most. They just go out there, do their deal, and, and keep racing. Al Hanna's another guy. Now, he's been around forever. And, uh, you know, they just go out there and race. You know, let the times and, and uh, mile an hour speak for themselves. So that's what, you know, you get those guys out there and they're good. Yeah, then you got guys like LZ out there and Danny Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Danny, I, I went up to um, Milwaukee. They were having up, uh, they were having a thing at Great Lakes Dragway, the twentieth reunion of something like that. Twentieth reunion of Great Lakes. So Paul Miller and I went up there. And uh, Danny was there, and he actually keeps his car at the track. And uh, he's like one of their favorite guys. And anytime they need a jet, they they know he's going to be there. Danny goes all over, but, you know, he's a touring pro. But uh, he stays close to home, and I don't blame him because it's expensive to be out on the road. You know, the, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Motel six. That's how much it cost. Six bucks originally. Well, now it's a hundred. So, although your our fees also rose, they didn't get crazy like everything else in the world. You know, we were racing fifty cents to gallon for gas. You know, you could. I had a 150-gallon gas tank on my on my uh, truck. And the whole back end of it was a big gas tank, uh, aluminum gas tank I had built, so you could load up and you wouldn't have to stop again till you uh, got to where you were going 90% of the time. But uh, you know, thing, oh, everything went up. All the costs of, of being out on the road. You know, he used to go get a meal and it was $2 or something. And you had a good meal. Now you, you can't even stop in at McDonald's and have buy anything for 2 bucks just about. So costs have risen so much that it's really hurt a lot of the touring guys. And, and the thing of it is now, with jet cars, there are so many of them out there. I am amazed. I just see some of my the sites that I'm on. I go, who's that guy? What's that guy? Where's he from? Who's this guy? Never heard of him. Never, you know. And I mean, I guess I should know better. You can't know everybody, 
but they just seemed like they came out of the woodwork to me. And, and I, I think I know the reason, and that is the tremendous cost now of booking anything into a racetrack to get the bands to come out. You can't book fuel cars. They just, you don't see it, but about three times a year, somebody has, you know, uh, Cruz Fedrigan or, uh, you know, I mean, I love Cruz Fedrigan, by the way. You know, but you he can't afford to go. The tracks cannot uh, pay him enough money to where he actually leaves with a few dollars in his pocket. And that's what match racing was all about, was making a living. And back in the day, that's how people did make a living. You could go out there with two or three guys in your pit crew, you know, so, and you could go and match race three, four times a week. I remember once I raced seven times in nine days. It was around the 4th of July, and boy, everybody wanted a jet around the 4th of July. Seven times in nine days. Uh, and I, I'll tell you this, this was always kind of weird to me. I always used to carry, it was always a cash business. And I had a big black motorcycle trucker's wallet, you know, with chain on it. I took the chain off. I didn't wear it. But I used to stuff my money in there. And at the end of those nine days, I couldn't have got another dollar bill into that wallet. It was so fat. And I ended up taking a pile of money from probably the last race because it wouldn't fit in there. And I just stuffed it in the bottom of my suitcase and totally forgot about it until I was all about out of clothes. And I got to the bottom shirt that was in my suitcase and there is a pile of money. And I thought, well, what the heck is this? And I had a couple thousand dollars just in my suitcase that I had totally forgotten about. Other than, you know, I had this big black trucker's wallet that was absolutely full of money. And I thought, man, oh man, this was, this was something. It was about making a living and having a good time. That's what I, why I did it. I loved the race, and I, but I wanted to be able to make a living doing it. Right. And, and it's hard to do that now with all the, the costs going up. And, and I know what the people are getting now. And be honest with you, it wasn't a lot different back in the day. So when, when you used to go to all these tracks, did any of the tracks ever feed you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they used to give us goodie bags on the way out here. Here, here's 10 hamburgers for you and your buddies. And, you know, so we'd have a little, little snacks on the way out. So, so what was your uh, favorite experience at Great Lakes Dragway, Mike? At Great Lakes? My favorite experience? Man, what was the best time you ever you can remember there? You know, the only thing that ever comes up in my mind when anybody asks me about that, and you probably know what my answer is going to be, and it wasn't it wasn't my favorite ex experience is when I crashed that uh, the hurricane uh, uh, funny car up there. Um, that was. 
that's the first thing that always comes to my mind. That was that was uh, well, uh, what's his name? I can't even think of his name. It was Craig Arfon's brother's car. He owned it, and uh, but we built it at Craig's shop. Terry Terry Arfon's. He was a businessman down in Florida, and uh, he wanted to send a car out there, and I ended up driving it. It was the fastest funny car out there. It was quick. Had a J eighty five engine in it, and it was a ride and a half. Beautiful car, I loved it. Well, on the particular run, uh, everything was fine. I left the starting line. I could feel it. There's stands at Great Lakes uh, that people may that are listening may not know about. They kind of block the wind, and once you get out from behind these stands, the wind can hit the car. And I think that's kind of what started it all. And it sort of pushed the car. I was in the right-hand lane. And it sort of pushed the car a little bit toward the center line. Nothing crazy. And I just gradually, gradually brought it back to the center. Because I wanted to be at the finish line in the center of the track. And that's exactly where I was. So I shut it off. And as soon as I shut it off, the car made an immediate right-hand turn. Just unbelievable. Bang. It was like a 90-degree turn. And uh, I went off the track and hit a, I hit a couple of trees. And as you're driving, you're looking where you're going. Of course, at that point, I wasn't driving. I was a passenger. And uh, yeah, there was this little tree over there. You know, I thought, okay, it looks like I'm going to hit that one. And... I didn't hit that one. I hit the big one behind it. And it was about a, maybe a foot diameter tree, you know. But it, as the car went into the tree, it had already kind of rotated around from right to, from left to right. And so I hit that tree on the passenger side of the car right where I was sitting and behind the front wheel and it cut everything off in front of the engine. It just cut everything right off. There was a little stub where my, uh, where the fuel control handles were. And it was about two inches from where, where this, where my hand would be. And that was where it took it right off. And there was a peg I used to put my foot on, uh, my little a bolt that we had welded to the car uh, on, uh, where my left foot could kind of rest on it. And that was the last thing left in front of that. You know, that was the, that was the last part. And then it cut everything from there off at this diagonal. Well, as it went through that first tree, it sort of started turning and the back end then hit the next tree down and that hit right behind the roll cage and took everything from there backwards off the car. So there was one tiny little spot and that's where I was sitting. Any one foot either direction and one of those trees would have hit me right 
I'd have been dead. There's no doubt about it. I got hurt pretty good over there. I was in the hospital for a while. And, uh, but, hey, as soon as I was able, we got another one. <laughs> we wanted to do this again. Let's try this to see if we can get it right this time. That did not dissuade me one moment from driving. I love driving. So what, what's your uh, greatest uh, memory of Broadway Bob Metzler? <laughs> do I have to say it? <laughs> but Broadway was great. He did things that nobody does today. And, I, and they can't, to be honest with you. Uh, again, it's a financial situation. But he booked everybody in the world in that place. You'd go there, and boy, all the names were there. And, you know, I mean, if you want to see a guy in a kite cycle jump three, uh, three you know, big rigs, he had it. I remember he had Evil Knievel was there one year for us. And he always put, like, two or three real, two, two really big shows on every year. And he'd get everybody that was to have. Anybody had a name was there. And you, I was in awe of all these people. And these were all the guys that I grew up reading about in magazines. You know, and uh, it was always fun to, to see these people and meet them. And uh, they were all good guys, you know. Uh, drag racers are pretty cool people 99% of the time. They'll do anything for you. If you're, you're in a final with somebody and the other guy's got a problem, you walk over and go, what do you need, a motor? You can borrow a motor. I'll give you my motor. Who does that? You know, we're, we're, you know to, and wait for you to change it so that you can have a final. You could have made a single because the other guy didn't have an engine. And you gave it to him so that you could actually have a final for the people to see a final round, you know. Drag race guys are pretty cool people. I've got to give you, give them credit for that. They, they go out of their way to help you 90% of the time. Now, now of course, most of the people's memories of uh, Broadway are seeing him sitting on the nose of the Green Mamba jet car. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, his big thing. You know, ride that nose, hang on with one hand, the other hand had a beer in it. Yeah. You know, he was just an incredible guy. I, I used to be, it used to boggle my mind. I, I could tell a story, I don't know, that was a, one of the motels that we used to, everybody used to stay at. They had a big fountain in like the lobby, you know, and uh, we'd sort of take over that whole motel, you know, they, everybody there was a racer. And I remember coming out in the morning and going down through the lobby and on the top of the this water fountain, you know, there's a pair of underwear. It's supposedly Bob's underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm thinking Bob had a good time last. I mean we're all you we were all just crazy. Coletta was there and he's a crazy man too. You know, I didn't get to meet him really too well, but uh, too much. But, you know, Coletta was there. Uh, and, and Doug Coletta, you know, the boss man, when he was still driving. You know, we're going back into the 70s. Back in, uh, you know, I mean, I actually, 
I started driving in 70. So, uh, you know, I, I went to all his events that he had, these big events. I was there until finally I got mad at him one year. And I, I told my agent, I said, I don't want to go. I don't get this much money. I don't want to go. And everybody was going to do that. All the jet cars were going to hold out. Guess who held out? Me. Everybody else went. I thought, boy, oh boy. <laughs> but the, the next time we were there, I think I was there with Roger at that point. And, I, and we were coming in the gate and Roger and I were, were pulling in the gate and Broadway's there right at the entrance. And we were talking to him. I said, "Boy, what happened to me? You don't, have, you don't advertise me anymore." He goes, "Oh yeah." And he turned around, and I swear to God, he grabs the sheet for that race. Now I'm not even racing, and he's got me down there. He's here's what he used to do. This was brilliant. What he would do when he did any advertising, he would go, "Okay, we got Mike Evans coming. That would be." over here, you know, on the top of the paper or somewhere. And then, and Green Mamba, uh, Stanicka Brothers, Compulsion. Well, wait a minute. Compulsion and Stanicka Brothers are the same thing. Then later on, it'd be Earthquake. Wait a minute. Earthquake and Mike Evans are the same thing. <laughs> Gustin, Untouchable. He would separate everybody everything to make it look like there was twice as many people or race cars as you know really were there right it was it was brilliant really anybody ever read one of those things because you knew the name of the name of the car and maybe you didn't put them together and especially when they were separated on the paper if he would have had mike evigen's earthquake that's one car you know, Roger Gustin, untouchable, one car. But he, the way he did it was by separating it. Oh, now you got four cars instead of two. Oh, now you got six cars instead of three. And it made it sound like there was going to be a hundred of them out there by the time you got there. And then the show was so great, you forgot all about it. You had a great time out there, anyhow, if you were a spectator. So it was really a lot of fun to <laughs> watch him work his magic. He used to make everybody, this one took me years to figure out. He would have us come in town like on a Wednesday and he had some place for us to go every day. And it was a gas station. It was an auto parts store. It was a speed shop that we, you know, he had us all over Milwaukee, everywhere. Racine, all around those, you know, the track. And he would meet you. This was how cool he was. He would meet you. I'll meet you at 11 o'clock at so-and-so's the sun. You know, okay, I'll be there. So, sure enough, but there at 11 o'clock, and here comes Broadway. All right, I'm going to help you unload this thing. He didn't really help you unload anything, okay? But he made you think he was going to help. All right, get that car off and put it over here right underneath this sign, whatever, you know. And then he says, all right, I want you to stay here till 9 o'clock. And I'm going, it's noon. He goes, well, yeah, but we got to promote this. You want me to stay till nine? Yeah, yeah, I'll be here to help you load up. That was the trick phrase that he had. And so you'd stay there all day.
day till nine o'clock, and you, he never was there, of course. He never, because he told everybody the same thing. I'll be there to help you load. Well, he was already at home having <laughs> dinner or whatever. So you load, and you, and you do that at a, you do it two or three places, building up to the weekend, you know. And he always tells you, okay, I'll be back at 8 o'clock. That's all you got to stay tonight. I'll here, be here to help you load up. Never happened. Years and years. It took years for me to figure out he was never going to come back. He was going to meet you there, set you up to where you had to be that day, and never come back to help you load or anything. I mean, you didn't really expect him to help you load. But you always were afraid that he would come back. And you should kind of stick around. So when we were supposed to leave at 8 o'clock, about 6 o'clock, we're hungry, load up and leave. Been there all day, you know. And never really got paid to do any of that stuff. So finally it took, it took years for me to figure out, unload, load when you want to load back up. You don't necessarily have to stay till 9 o'clock. And that was kind of, uh, but it took me a while to figure it out. I should have, I should have been smarter than that. <laughs> so now, Micah, what, what, what would you consider to be the fondest memory of your uh, jet car career? The finest what? The fondest memory. You know what? The the whole my whole career, twenty five years I spent doing this. 25 years and I loved all of it it's the hardest life you could ever have other than if you have a fuel car but you're on the road constantly constantly driving one place to another Wednesday night you're in Kansas Friday night you're in Pennsylvania Saturday night you're in uh, Iowa it's ridiculous. We used to put so much, so much miles on every year. You know, you're, you're just like tied to the truck to try to get to the next race because that's where you made your living. You had to do it that way. And I met so many people over the years that I kept seeing over and over and over again. That was the cool part of it. Just being able to connect with the fans. They were the people that paid your way. Without them, nothing. You wouldn't have a job. And I would see these people return to the track. Every time I would go back to a certain track, I knew who was going to be there to greet me and go, hey, Mike, how you doing today? How's things going? And, you know, they'd hang around all day for whatever reason, they thought, you know, each person in their mind makes you out to who you they want you to be. And I tried to be friendly and, and nice to everybody. I'm sure there was somebody out there that's going to say, nah, that jerk, he was an idiot when I talked to him. Caught me at a bad moment or whatever. But I always tried to, I remember where I came from. And I remember how I got there. It was all these people. And that was that's the most fond memories that I have. 25 years of racing, 
seeing these people over and over and over and over again. Every time I went to Englishtown, I knew who was going to be there. Every time I went to uh, 